Paolo Beltrami, you are an Italian Jesuit. You are in the novitiate and just started. Mm -hmm. And so you're over here in Ireland doing what's called an experiment. You're working in Belvedere College. By profession, you are an astrophysicist. That's right. And you lectured in that before you joined the Jesuits. Right. So tell me this. You're a hard nut scientist Mm -hmm. and you have a belief in God that is so strong that you've joined, you have feel you have a vocation to join the Jesuits. Is science, as it's portrayed today, clearly for you, it is not, science and religion are not in conflict? Yeah, I don't think that science and religions are in conflict, mostly because as a scientist, we cannot prove why the laws of physics stand, why they work. So we must reach a point where we say, okay, this is why they stand. The topic of physics, though, is not to prove why they stand. This is a matter of philosophy or theology. So physics, at maximum, can open a door for some experience or some additional justification to find why they work. This is not telling us that we have to be Christian or Jewish or Muslim, but it's telling us, look, if you do your experiment, you don't have the reason or you cannot provide the reason why they work. And as curious human beings, we want to find the reason why. Possibly, and very likely, I say this is my experience, is not through rational thinking or is not through scientific thoughts that we can prove why they stand. I don't have the proof, but I can have a view, an horizon where I can look at. And this horizon I call religion. As a scientist and as mm-hmm. a physicist, however, you are saying that there are laws, rational laws, that work, that the universe is rational and things do happen in a way where the laws are at work. And yet the question is then, that doesn't necessarily mean, if we're asking why, that well, the answer is because there's a God. Yeah, it doesn't say that there is a God, but doesn't even say that there is no God. As I was describing before, I think it's opening a door. And this is what spirituality and religion is. And as Ignatius said to us, finding God in everything, and I think this everything includes also physics and the laws of physics. So basically, as long as we are curious of things and as long as we want to investigate our universe, this opens our mind and opens our hearts as well to, to seek for an answer. We might invent multiverses and a lot of universes that by chance and by random explanation they create these kind of laws of physics and then they work in this way and allow us to be here. But this is not an explanation for, we call it in physics, the Occam Resor, that we need to find the simplest solution. And I don't think that creating multiverses, an infinite number of universes, is a very simple solution. God is not even a simple solution, but it goes beyond physics. And we exceed science, we exceed physics in our own life. I don't think that having just a rational explanation can tell us everything of us. The one thing maybe that it can do that science does help with is that the method of science... The method, you were talking a lecture recently about dark matter. Now, we'll talk more about dark matter in a moment, but the fact is that dark matter doesn't exist. 
as such in that sense that you've never seen it. It's mm-hmm. a hypothesis that works and that's regarded as perfectly acceptable. So maybe the same when people are trying to speak about God. Yeah, well, I will distinguish the problem or the mystery in quotes of dark matter from the mystery of God. I think mystery of dark matter or the issues or problem from dark matter are mostly physical and mathematical problems. And we observe galaxies or better cluster of galaxies or the cosmic microwave backgrounds. And we say we need some more material, some more matter rather than what we only see on what we only observe with telescopes. And we call this dark matter. We don't see it, but we see the effect on it. Whilst if we move from this aspect into inside us, within us, like St. Augustine said, we need to investigate what we are experiencing. And also Ignatius was on this line as well. And we see an effect when we believe in God, when we try to seek the will of God. We see that our emotions, our feelings, our desires, they change, they modify. This means that probably there is someone up there and also down here that is embracing us and is telling us, well, look, I'm here for you and you are there for me and for others. Try to experience this even more and more and try to feel and to get into the feeling of what I'm uh, whispering to you. And that reminds me then of the increasing interest in the cosmic Christ, as opposed to, you know, yes, Jesus, who was a human being who came on earth and loved and was one of us. But then he became the Christ. So talk to me about that notion then of cosmos and cosmic Christ in relationship to the cosmology you study. Yeah, I think I see Christ in a dual manner or dual twofold. One is the cosmic Christ that you mentioned before, and I take this expression from Teilhard de Chardin, a Jesuit that I really like him, I love him. But also like the child Jesus, I really like the uh, passage of the Gospel of Matthew 2, where we have the story, or maybe the myth of the wise men who are coming from the East. They were actually studying the stars. I don't know whether they were scientists or maybe they were, and once they reached the point where the stars were pointing, what did they see? They see a baby, a baby. They didn't see a superhero or Superman or a super fascinating God, but a baby. So they saw a human being, and once they were going back, they changed way, they changed their life. I think having this experience with humans is crucial, is very fundamental. And probably this is one of the issues that scientists and many, many people have because Christianity is telling us to change our life. It's not just a philosophy or a theoretical way of living. Once we realize that we are men and God incarnate on earth, then we become men for others. And this also helps us to discover ourselves better, better. We become more ourselves when we are more men for others. And this is interesting. Do you think that what perhaps is not realized, you mentioned there the story of the Magi may or may not have existed, but even the fact that they are in that story, they have a symbolic reference. And that as human beings, we approach knowledge in different ways. So there's a scientific way of knowing, but there's a spiritual way of knowing. There's a poetic or artistic way of knowing. Is that one of the the lessons maybe that we can take from 
the way science operates, the way spirituality and theology operates? Well, obviously there are different ways of knowing things and science seems to be very successful in explaining things. But I would also say that there are a lot of overlaps in different ways of expressing things. And physicists or scientists, they have a lot of um, language or a lot of discourse that is very analogical, poetical, creative. And this goes very close to what the mystics were using, what the poets were using. Can you give me an example? Well, when we describe quarks, those are the components of the nuclei, of the protons and neutrons, we call them up, down, not because one of them is up and the other one is down, just because we use this analogical discourse, analogical way of expressing things. We have different families, of course. I don't want to go into the details, but just to tell you, well, maybe we can express this in a human way. And the way how we describe these things is very close to poetry sometimes. So it's not really that this, it's a subatomic particle, is that right? And yeah. it's not really that it's up or it's down, but because of the way you describe it, that's exactly. what it's called. Yeah, yeah. We describe things in in very fascinating way. Also the name we gave to galaxies or the way how we interpret the interaction for the subatomic particles. Like physicists might know it, the Feynman diagrams, they are very beautiful to see it. Are they real? They are not, is our way to describe the phenomena that we observe. And this, I don't think, is completely different from poetry or from paintings or from arts in general. We, we use this way just because we understand and we can express this in that way. It, there is a lot of beauty in physics I and in mathematics. I just about to say that. We're yeah. talking about beauty here. Yeah, and beauty is not a rude scientific concept. But we use it a lot. Um, theories that came out during the late 70s or 80s of the last centuries, it is called string theory and is founded on the beauty of the mathematics. And beauty is a concept that we really follow to understand nature, because nature is beautiful. And is that something that is just human or it open up, opens up to something else, something more? That's interesting because you remind me of a fellow Jesuit guy, Consul Manuel, yeah. who is the Vatican astronomer, and I spoke to him once and he told me that the same thing, that if, if a theory, and if he was making a hypothesis, the more beautiful it was, the more likely it was to be true. Yes, yeah, that's and, right. And of course these are the transcendentals that philosophers yeah. talk about goodness, beauty, truth, and so on. Do you think... And you're an Italian, so this, you know about Galileo and people oh, like yeah. that. Do you think that when they started to give their theories and Copernicus saying mm -hmm. that, guess what, the earth is not the center of the right. universe and that they got into conflict with the church and eventually the church was proven wrong. Do you think that the church then, in an effort to match the scientists, mm -hmm. actually became, moved into their own game and that that actually didn't work. It led to the kind of things like we have today, the Dawkins and yeah. the people like that, because they tried to say to the scientists, we can take you on, we're rational, we, 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 our theology is rational, and yet in a way it's not. It's a different kind of knowing, and that the church was a victim of it. What happened in the 21st century was a result of that. Instead of them saying, no, we know in a different way, we talk about God in a different way. 
artists don't try to say I'm a scientist. Yeah. You know, I can be like a scientist. They say, no, Picasso did his mugs without any bottoms in them exactly. because he, I'm an artist. Don't ask yeah. me to make a functional mug. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? It's a long question, I know. <laughs> I think that's correct and implies several aspects. One of them, and I think is crucial, is the humility. Once we know that we don't own the truth and saying this, I'm um, say this to theologians, but also scientists, none of them own the truth. So I cannot say I have the truth because it's not mine and it's not of someone else. So then I can recognize that also others might have the truth and everything is a gift. The progress of science is a gift for theologians and the progress of theology is a gift for scientists is kind of finding God in everything. And then we also use a different languages. The language of science is not the one of theology and vice versa and will be very important, and it is very important, to acknowledge this. When I write a letter to a friend of mine, I use a language that is completely different compared to the language that I use when I write scientific paper, and I stay with that. I'm the same person, but I have a plurality of aspects in me, and recognizing this plurality is fundamental. Now, in that regard, there is a process nowadays among some theologians and commentators. I'm thinking of people even like Richard Rohr, uh, who are talking about this, the cosmic Christ and the evolution, and Teilhard de Jardin and recovering people like that. But is there a danger that sometimes when they're speaking, that they're using science as a, a model for, look what science is discovering, that we're ever evolving, that there's energy, that there are black holes and mm-hmm. things, and that somehow then God becomes almost conflated with that yeah. as well. Um, do you know what I'm saying? That it's nearly like God is an energy. It, God is this energy that's going around the cosmos. That's not what you're saying either, is it? No. So Georges Lemaitre, who was a scientist, the one who introduced the Big Bang, he discovered the Big Bang and by chance he was also a Catholic priest, he said that there are two ways to reach the truth. One is religion and the other one is science. And he used both. And he said, I'm using both. And I think it's so important to have an open approach for everything. An additional anecdote on Lemaitre, when Pope Paul VI heard about the Big Bang that was introduced by a Catholic priest, he said, okay, this is the proof of the existence of God, of the creation. And then Lemaitre, this very smart and also humble priest, he wrote to the Pope telling him, please don't say that God is causing the Big Bang directly, because maybe in the future, science will change, there will be other theories. And God doesn't create the universe in time, but create it with time. So one has to be very, very careful not to confuse the two um, fields of research. Because that's what I was thinking about. Um, If we take, say, Richard Rohr, he talks about the Trinity and this relationship between the Trinity as an ever, you know, ongoing Mm -hmm. wheel and the water on the wheel and the peristalsis of the movement. And then he talks about scientists and how the atom is made up of three, the neutron, Neutron, proton, and then electron. And that you talked about the beautiful drawing and and scientists draw them beautifully, but it's the energy between them that Mm -hmm. that makes the the movement. But maybe it's my approach or my attitude. I'm always very skeptical when I see theology invading the field of science and the other way around. I was giving a conference recently at the Belvedere College and 
um, I got a question. So can you merge religion and science? And I told them, I don't want to merge them to work. I need two legs and I want to use both of them. One has to be very, very careful not to mix the things because we have different ways of understanding things and different languages and different use of our mind and of our heart. And we need to keep them not separated, but in dialogue completely. And dialogue means that you have one subject and another subject and you don't mix them. We are not very much Hegelian or we don't follow very much the philosophy of Hegel. And yet, do you don't think that Tayyar de Jardin fell into that trap, do you? I don't think so. I think that Teilhard de Chardin was a mystic. And he said, very rare to read this in a book, this is not my field of expertise, so what I'm saying is filtered by my knowledge that doesn't want to invade other fields, other approaches. So, so I don't think that he felt into this risk. Really, I don't think so. So now tell me then, nonetheless, you are, your whole thesis is that, you know, that the science and the physicist and, and the work that you do can be related in some way to Ignatian spirituality and yeah. to spirituality in general. For you personally, how have you found links as a scientist, as an astrophysicist, that has it in any way helped you in your spirituality and faith? Well, I think the work of physics, in my case, was to keep the door open. So not finding an explanation of why the laws of physics stand, leave the door open. And then I think that God was seeking for me, was looking for me. It's not just us looking for God, but we need to recognize if we leave the door open that then God is looking for us and this allow him to enter. I think this guy is, even if he's infinity, is very respectful of our own free will and our own freedom. And if you want to close to close the windows or to close the doors, he don't enter. He doesn't enter. And so the job of science in my case was to to open my mind. And then a kind of mystical experience happened to me that was very natural. I, I don't want to put any supernatural things. I was in South Dakota in the USA. It was Christmas Day. I was working in an experiment that is 1.5 kilometers underground. So very interesting job as a physicist. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. And then I was staying in an apartment because for economical reason that was cheaper than renting a room in a hotel. And in this apartment on Christmas Day, a group of deer came. This is very natural. There is no uh, extraordinary events in it uh, or phenomena. But I cannot explain this in English. I wouldn't be able even to explain it in Italian. But to me, that means that there is a God who is embracing all the universe and myself included in this. And then I start questioning myself and I took the eight days retreat with the Jesuits and then I entered the society. This long blah, 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 just to say that if I wanted to achieve God with my rationality, I wouldn't be able, not at all. It was the deer... Yeah. coming to the place you were staying on that day. And in a way, it's beyond words, and yet you knew it for sure. Yes, yeah. That gave me a kind of certainty that, okay, there is something, there is something. I cannot explain this in, in rational words. I used to say the experience of God is like going to the toilet. One cannot <laughs> go on behalf of someone else. <laughs> if you have to go to the toilet, you go to the toilet. If you don't, well... <laughs> So it's not very 
poetical, but this is the way how I tends to express it. It's very concrete and, and, yeah. and very clear. And um, so th I think that's a very interesting experience that you've spoken there of, because in a, in a sense, if we take it in terms of our discussion about science and, and faith, nonetheless, there was an outcome. You know, so scientists will go back to our dark yeah. matter, posit dark matter because things happen that yeah. they want to explain. So something happens and the same for you. Something happened. It wasn't just that you saw them, but action resulted from that. So that's the proof of the power of what you experienced. Yeah. Well, it's like the story of the Magi. When they see this child, they changed way. They say, okay, something now has to happen. We have to modify our own uh, way of living. Not because someone is forcing us. A newborn baby cannot force anyone is a very fragile creature. But they realized that it was fundamental for them to understand and to feel and to desire a new life. And finally, in this conversation, you mentioned something there I'd like to pick up on, and that is about time. Mm. And then the transcendent being outside time. It's interesting that in Einstein's theory of relativity, I mean, it does twist our yeah. understanding of time, yeah. am I correct? Yeah, that's correct because of, uh, we call it general relativity. And when we have a supermassive object, times slow down there, at least as we observe it, because time is relative. Point though that maybe God is working with us with what we call psychological time that also Stephen Hawking, thanks God, <laughs> recognizes it and is a very personal way to talk to people. For instance, this interview is very lovely and I like it and time flies. If I'm doing something that is very super boring, time seems to stop, not passing at all. And this is something that we experience. So this is why time is very important. But even more important than time is our experience of what we are living on of what is happening and our experience of time. And can I ask you, when you look then, we talk about eternity. Eternity, when we talk predicated of God, then we're saying it's nothing to do with time at all. It's no. completely outside yeah. time. Yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? it it's, is. it's hard to get your head around it. Yeah. And yet, if I were doing astrophysics and the little bits that I have read in my amateurish way is quite mind-blowing anyway. Do you find that as a scientist that we're just a little speck yeah. And we're talking about millions and millions of years yeah. and billions of stars and, and we seem so small oh, we are. significant. We are so small. We are so small. Now, I really love Paul Davis. Probably he's not a Christian, but he has a wonderful respect and a mystical view. Of Is he a scientist? He's a scientist. He's an astrophysicist. And he concludes one of his best popular science books. This book is called The Mind of God. It's wonderful. I really recommend it. Paul Davis? Paul Davis, yeah. And at the end of his book, he just writes one sentence. doesn't write, okay, you have to believe in Christ, in God. No, no, no. He writes, we really meant to be here. We are not here by chance or by random. Now, the point is that, yeah, we are very, very small and our life can be completely insignificant, but we are meant to be here. It's very important that we are here and the individual life of every one of us is very, very important. The universe, this enormous and infinite almost scenario 
and landscape that is going on for about 13.8 billion of years is fascinating and might give us a sense of humility and of nothingness. But in this nothingness, at least so far, we know that we are the only one who can investigate these enormous things. And this is a very precious characteristics that we have. And one day, maybe we will find someone else who is doing the same. And that will be wonderful to have a chat with them. You mean there are aliens? I think so. Do you, Carlo? So. You think there are probably other planets? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, why, why so? Well, this is my rational thinking, because the universe is so vast that will be a waste of space and time to be only one. But as I said earlier, I think so. I'm not saying I'm certain, I'm secure. I think so. And then I think will be a big problem for the atheists because can they tell us why there is life in the universe and it's not just one phenomenon, but there are a lot of other civilizations. Why the universe bother to create lives here and there? Why the universe seems to be made in a way to create life? This is fascinating. And as we know, love doesn't diminish if there are more people to be loved. The more people are, the more you can love. And do you think they'll be like humans or do you imagine, and, and I'm serious about this, <laughs> would they be like, you know, the wonderful Star Wars where there's all different types of beings? Yeah. Um, Honestly, I don't Star Wars remind me, when I told my student that I was joining the Jesuits, I told them <laughs> privately, they say, well, the Jesuit, maybe you mean the Jedi. <laughs> You will join the Jedi. Well, I said, no, no, Jesuit are relatively different. So this, um, just to make a joke. But anyway, I, I don't know how they are. I don't know. I really don't know. And this is why it's so fascinating, because we are trying to find what we don't know. Doing what we know is not very interesting. If you know something already, you want to move on. And it's great not to be scared by it. Oh, no. Why should we be scared? Stephen Hawking was scared, but... Was he? he? He was scared because having in mind that probably aliens might be more advanced than us, we might be overcome by them. So As you live your life, you dread your neighbor. Maybe they'd be nicer than we maybe, are. Maybe, maybe they will be nicer. Maybe they will be nicer. Surely they can teach us something or a lot and we can teach them something. I will be scared in terms of a scientific research because... I've been spending 15 years of my life searching for dark matter. I, I would be a little bit disappointed if one day an alien will come and tell me, okay, there is dark matter, is this? No, I want to, to search on my own. And have you, just for our listeners, quick word of what you're looking for, dark matter. Is it a real thing? What is it? Oh, we are not very good in understanding what dark matter is, but we are very, very, very good in understanding what dark matter is not. So we are very capable in saying no, dark matter is not what we call baryonic matter. It's not part of the standard model that is summarizing all of our knowledge in particle physics nowadays. Uh, so we say that it is not this, it is not that, but we observe that dark matter is in space and in the galaxies because we observe the motion of the galaxies and the stars that are up there. Now, dark matter is everywhere is creating gravitational wealth, and we fall into it. Matter, baryonic matter, falls into this uh, gravitational wealth, and then creates galaxies, stars, planets, us. So 
is not that we are here and then dark matter is here, but rather the opposite. We are here because dark matter was here long before us. And it's a force? It's a what? <laughs> I don't know. That's what you're looking for, is yeah. it? It's something that you posit because things happen and need to be explained. And this is the explanation. Yeah. Um, basically, dark matter is a um, kind of label that we are putting to explain when things happening because of matter is there, but we cannot see this matter in the universe. If we think of the two terms, dark and matter, if we start from matter, what is matter? Is what as a mass, what is weight, and what is dark? Dark is everything that does not interact with the electromagnetic waves, with light. Can be gamma rays, X-rays, radio waves. So dark in the sense that is not interacting with the electromagnetic waves. So this is what dark matter is. It's basically is a massive component of the universe that cannot be directly observed, probably in the next 10 or 20 years will be, I hope so, but it accounts for the matter when we cannot see this matter at the moment. Is that what the Boson-Higgs experiment, is that involved in dark matter? Um, Higgs-Boson. Exactly, exactly. Oh, you study. (laughs) Bosons, we can think of the bosons like messenger. They exchange information from a particle to another one. How the X bosons is involved in dark matter is still not clear. Probably the X mechanism was involved at the creation of dark matter, and maybe the X bosons is the mediator between dark matter and standard model particles. By standard model particles, I mean the normal matter. If we think that we only observe not just with our eyes, but with telescopes and experiments, only 5% of the energy of the universe. All the rest is unknown. This is very fascinating. And we need to discover it. This is how we are here, I guess. And God is telling us, come on, guys, you are intelligent enough. Find this stuff. (laughs) Maybe as a Jesuit, you'll get a special hint and discover what dark matter is and become one of those famous scientific Jesuits. (laughs) Or like Georges Lemaitre in the Big Bang. It's been an absolute pleasure and fascinating talking to you today. All the very best now as you're back learning, back at the desks in the novitiate and and Mm -hmm. on the cold front. And may your uh, astrophysics help you um, on that journey. Thank you very much. God bless.